Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. I'm Chris Bench, Chief Curator at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. I've been on lots of shows. I've been on the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum, on the History Channel's Toys That Build America, but I am equally excited to be right here on the Missing Chapter podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Schaff here with Phil Hornder. Phil, we usually talk coffee at the beginning of each episode. Today, I'd like to highlight uh, our guest today. It's Christopher Bench, Chief Curator of the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. He's been featured on Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum and the History Channel's Toys That Built America, which is actually one of my favorite episodes uh, on the History Channel. So, Chris, welcome to the Missing Chapter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Phil and Phil. Now, Chris, describe, um, you know, who you were at the Strong Museum and give us a little background uh, before we get talking about um, toying around uh, our episode today. Well, I'm unusual in that when I was in eighth grade, I wrote an essay that when I grew up, I wanted to go to the Winter Tour Museum in Wilmington, Delaware's program in museum studies and then become a curator of a historic house. And lo and behold, that is exactly what I did with my studies and wound up running a historic house in Utica, New York. And now I have the best job in the world, which is the head of all the museum's collections at the Strong National Museum of Play, more than 500,000 items. This is why I have stuck with my job here for 33 years and I am not letting go of it any time soon because it's way too much fun. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, one of the great things about history, Chris, is that you could, you know, pretty much study it through anything. You know, I took a college course, American history through through baseball. And I, I love the fact that you are able to trace American history in these great decades that we have through toys. What personally drew you? I mean, you said 33 years. That's a long time. What drew you to the topic of toys? Well, it wasn't so much me getting drawn to the topic of toys that the museum changed. When I started here in 1989, we were a museum that dealt with how everyday Americans live from 1820 to 1940. So if it was dishes, if it was appliances, if it was furniture, that was part of what we did. But all along, we had this phenomenal collection of toys, dolls, and games. And we sort of didn't know what to do with that. And we kept saying, how do we integrate this with this bigger topic of history and how 
the rise of the middle class, expressions of identity, progress through the industrial era. And we said, you know, there are other museums who deal with that stuff. Why don't we ditch all of that and let's just concentrate on the play and the toys, dolls, and now 55,000 video games in our collection. Uh, that's what we're uniquely qualified to do. And that is something that has really sent us in the past two decades into the stratosphere because I have to say, this is way more fun than the Chippendale chairs that I studied in graduate school and that we are constantly breaking new trail. We're figuring things out as we go along. There are new great games, toys, or duds out there every day that we need to document and reflect on how play affects all of our lives, kids and grownups alike. That's fantastic. And I think you brought up a lot of great points. And I think this is a great segue into this episode because to give the listeners a background of, of why we're here is, you know, one of the one of the researching um, aspects that, that we love doing is, is maybe things that happened accidentally, you know, and one of those um, one of those inventions was the slinky. So in my research of, you know, inventions that were, were initially accidents, uh, one of the first things that came up was the slinky. And I, I, boy, it sparked, a, you know, the historian's curiosity in me. So as I'm doing research, one of the um, initial people that, that popped up was your name was Christopher Bench. So I said, oh, my gosh, he's, you know, he works at the Strong Museum, which my wife and I take our kids to every year. And once we uh, we got talking and emailing, you were gracious enough to join us on the podcast. So I do want to mention um, the, the, the essence of the episode, you know, toying around is really essentially around uh, a character by the name of Richard James and the invention of the Slinky. So could you give us a little bit of background of who Richard James was and how this pretty unbelievable accident turns into one of the most successful toys ever created? You know, from a young kid, Richard James was a tinkerer. He was doing things like building his own cars out of spare parts. He was doing all sorts of kind of crafty, things, putting things together in unexpected ways. And he carried that sort of joy of discovery and exploration. You were kind of referring to that kind of toying around. He was always open to where can this take me? And his long suffering wife, Betty, sort of had a constant kind of eye roll of, oh, here he goes again with a great idea because he was full of ideas. Not all of them, frankly, were great, but he was always looking for the next big thing. And in World War II, uh, in the years that he was working at the Philadelphia Naval Yard, he was looking for ways to cushion naval instruments aboard ships. And he was studying different styles of springs with the idea that that would help insulate them from the kind of motion that goes on on a ship. And according to the story, one day he had all these springs that had proven to be really crummy at what he was hoping they would do on his desk, knocked one off, and lo and behold, it did that slinky thing. It walked down. And I like to picture this just like a cartoon where a literal light bulb goes on over his head. It's, aha, I've got something here. And in fact, he reportedly turned to Betty and said, I think we've got a toy. And it, there's something to be said about that, because I think, you know, for me, I'm not I don't have that inventor's mindset. So if, if I accidentally hit something, I'm probably just going to grab it and pick it back up and put it on its desk. He sees a, a, an opportunity there. 
Is there something, because I know in, in one of the clips um, that we could play for the listeners, um, or they could just refer to the episode on the History Channel, The Toys That Built America, season one, episode one, by the way, um, is that you mentioned that he was, he had this entrepreneurial mindset. So would the Slinky ever have taken off if he didn't knock over that coiled spring um, and see the opportunity there? It would not. And, and he pursued it. He pursued it through so many obstacles. This is something that he needed to figure out not only how this could be machined at a price that people would be willing to pay. He, it took him all sorts of experimentation to come up with just the precise right amount of coiled steel of a per, very particular gauge that would work right. Because any of us who've known slinky knockoffs know that they are no good because they aren't up to that kind of engineering standard. And then once he had it produced, he had to get out there and sell it. And that was a huge hurdle. This is not a showy kind of toy. You compare it to any board game, toy vehicle, construction set, doll, and it looks like something that's escaped from your mattress. Why should I spend a dollar on this thing? What's so cool about it? And he could barely persuade stores to stock it. It didn't show well, but he wouldn't give up. He had that kind of persistence that is characteristic of so many entrepreneurs who really make it. And that's the part I like, especially as a teacher, because a big part of our mission statement, you know, through this podcast was to get kids interested in history. And the story of the Slinky is as much the story about Richard James and his persistence and the persistence of someone who thinks they have a good idea and they're committed to their work as much as it is to the actual Slinky itself. So through him, these are we showed um, some of our classes excerpts from the toys that built America, which they, they, to watch a group of 30 plus high schoolers watch a history documentary and sit there with so many questions and so interest in and of itself was fantastic. But the, the story of him as a person, I think resonated with them as much as the actual slinky did. He was a guy who stuck to it. And, and yeah, that's an admirable quality in whatever field you are endeavoring to make success at and I, I i was very interested in the in the aspect of the interactions between richard and his wife betty and i think maybe you know later on there's there's a big twist to this entire story which i was shocked uh to see which we've mentioned before we started recording but um i think one of the most interesting pieces is okay so he has he, he has this eye for opportunity he saw the slinky essentially walk itself away after he knocked it off with his elbow, he picks it up and brings it to Betty and says, Hey, we got something here. And she needed a little convincing too. But once she was convinced it, the next step was we got to name this thing. So what was the process like and how many names did they come up with before they came up with Slinky? Well, Betty, as you say, was outsourced. He's outsourced the naming to her and she went through the dictionary and she concentrated on the S's because she thought this sort of looks like an S shape. And going through that, she really settled on Slinky and found that that had the sort of right sound, the kind of sinuous, uh, snake-shaped kind of impression that that creates that was 
perfect for encapsulating what this is and what it can do for you as an item that you actually want to buy and play with. Now, my question is, as I, you know, as somebody who was born, you know, in 1978, I, I grew up in the 80s. We certainly had a number of slinkies in the house that we played with. My sons are four and eight. Um, they have every electronic at the, the the tip of their hand, you know, from a Nintendo Switch to whatever. Um, but they still love the slinky. And the excitement they get when that slinky makes it from the very top of the stairs all the way down to the bottom is the same excitement and joy I had in the 1980s. What is it with the slinky, do you think, in, in particular, that has allowed it to resonate over time and throughout generations? It is one of those rare evergreen kind of toys that persists generation after generation. That's one of the reasons that it was inducted into our National Toy Hall of Fame a number of years ago. So it is recognized as a classic. As you say, you grew up with it and you say, if I turned out okay and I had a slinky, my kids should have it too. Another thing that is really helpful for the slinky is compared to a Nintendo Switch, it has a really low price point. Mm -hmm. So it can be an impulse purchase. It is something that is so accessible to people with all sorts of economic capacity or lack thereof. And it is also unique. It it has, as the their jingle goes, that slinkity sound. Nothing sounds that way. There is no also ran slinky other than some crummy plastic ones that right. I have to say just can't walk, can't do anything that a slinky should do. Uh, so it is its own thing. It is unique. It has everyone, here's the word slinky, they picture just one thing. It is out there as a unique item and that has made it enduring. All those qualities and frankly also because of 60s era jingle that I am not going to sing because it is an earworm that will stay with all of us for days on end. But maybe you'll put in a clip at the end of the podcast when I've signed off so I don't have to hear it yet again because it is perfect at encapsulating what this toy is, what it can do to you, do for you. And that's what made it extra compelling in television advertising in the 1960s. And I have to say, we listened to the jingle the other day, and it was. It was like I was watching cartoons growing up, and it was one of those regular commercials that would come on. And it was so memorable and so iconic that it, it really, I, you know, in terms of its, its um, you know, going out to the public, and it's, it was just part of the purchasing was you had that song that you equated it with. That That is brilliant marketing yeah. and proof of, a perfect match of marketing and product that yeah. they mesh seamlessly. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was Betty's idea. It was it was her it was her gig that that really got this jingle going, right? I mean, it was her idea to get a jingle attached to this. That's right, and it was a pretty daring move. The company was on hard times when Betty was doing this, and why is she blowing all this money? on writing a unique jingle and buying TV advertising, that was outrageous. But that's what turned the firm around when times had gotten hard. So, and, and we, I don't want to jump the gun here because we have so many avenues to go down with this, with this topic. Um, so just to backtrack a little bit, 
you, you mentioned knockoffs and there was something that I, I found interesting with Richard James being such obviously an entrepreneur, but he's an inventor at heart. And, and he knew that there had to have been a way to perfect this thing. So it worked seamlessly almost every time. How did he come up with 98 spirals? You know, that seems to be a magic number. Was it just through trial and error or how, how did he figure that out? The best I understand it, yes, it was indeed trial and error. There was no way to judge that 96 is close, but no cigar except by trying it. So that was, and it was the precise gauge of the wire as well. It's got to have the right torsion and uh, tension in it that it is going to produce the kind of effect that he wanted. And I, I thought this was very interesting as well. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, I can picture myself, you know, playing with the slinky growing up and, you know, there, there is this like almost personified version of the slinky that you can create because it, it almost walks, it, it almost talks to you because it has a, has a tone, but I, I never knew. And this is, this is one of the reasons why Phil and I do this podcast, the missing chapter, because we're, we're highlighting areas that people have probably never known. I never knew that it was used in the Vietnam war as a radio antenna. Right, right. It had, it had so many different uses that were non-toy related. It was used in the space program as well. It was used as a gutter guard on the eaves of your house. It was used as part of lighting fixtures. Mm -hmm. So people, other people had their own aha moments when they saw slinkies and that, oh, I can turn this into something else. So it wasn't restricted to Richard James' moment of creation. It helped inspire other creative people to come up with new applications for it. And I have to say, growing up, I, I can visualize myself in the hallway at, at our high school using it in a physics lab, too. Must have been learning about like sound waves or something, but the slinky was there. It was part of our, our science experiment, too. Um, one of the things I think that kind of shocked me was that in a time period where so many materials were being, you know, conserved because of wartime, it surprised me that the slinky was not made out of like a plastic or something like that, something that was a little bit more readily available and wasn't so important to the war effort. Well, it came out just after the war. 1948, I believe, was the year that it made its market debut. So there were no more wartime restrictions on metal use that had really impeded things during World War II. For instance, we have a Lionel train set that couldn't be made out of metal. It's basically a fold-it-yourself cardboard Lionel train that just sits there. It doesn't have any way to move because they couldn't use metal products. Those were restricted to wartime use. So uh, this is an opportunity just after that period when there are materials that are out there. But And it's just before plastic really takes over the toy industry in the 50s and then especially in the 60s. So it was at a key moment when those wartime limitations were gone, but plastic wasn't yet the dominant form. And I feel like that was such an like an, an important element to this because a lot of what we've talked about, the sound, even like the smell, the feel to it, it had to be the material that it is. It had to be metal because I, I don't I think we would have lost a lot of that if it wasn't. I think you're entirely right. And although metal has its own downfalls, it can get kinked or bent. And once 
your little sibling has put a kink in your slinky, it's never going to walk the same way again. It's a sad moment. It's devastating. It is. It is. Now, what I what I find a little ironic as well is the fact that you know his his original purpose was for essentially military use, um, and it, it did come back and it, it was used in the Vietnam War and such. But was there any other any other uses in the military that that anyone saw need for? Not that I've figured out or come up with in my course of research. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, it was a failure at the point that it was needed for the military, but it was only later that people saw its capacity. Now, this is this is the part where where we, we bring in the twist, because this is something that, that is very, it was shocking to me as, as I was learning uh, this from you directly. Um, there's a crazy turn of events where, where Richard James uh, gets inspired, we, we could say, and decides to essentially leave the United States and everything he earned um, with the Slinky and, and the business model itself. So after the break, we're gonna we're gonna tell the listeners exactly what that twist and turn was, and how he eventually dug himself out of this hole. Over the last two seasons, we've enjoyed bringing unknown stories from history to you every weekend. Now it's your turn to bring a story to us. Every town in every corner of the world has a story, and its history is our history. Tell us the story about your hometown and what makes it special or unique. We're calling it Hometown History. Who or what is your town known for? Tell us your hometown story either in an email or a voice message from our Facebook page. Phil and I will choose one hometown's history to research and profile in a full episode of Season 3 of The Missing Chapter. And we'll contact you to be a part of it. Every hometown has a story. The next chapter we add to the history textbooks could be yours. Welcome back to The Missing Chapter podcast. We're here with our, our guest today, Christopher Bench. Uh, out in Rochester, we're talking about the Slinky and really all things toy related, and we're having a good time. Um, Phil, we've had a lot of good episodes in, in the first season and a half, and I think this has just been really, really enjoyable because, first off, Chris, you've been a great interview. We really appreciate you giving us the time, and, and we know you're busy, but also the topic, I think, is just something that I think a lot of our listeners are probably enjoying as well, and being able to to relive some of those memories from their childhood with their own toys and their own Slinkies. Absolutely. And the story of Richard James is fascinating. And I think this is where this is where we tell the listeners the, the big twist. Uh, Richard James decides, as we said before the break, he's, he decides to really leave everything behind and shockingly, including his own family. So, listen, you're the expert in this. So I'm going to hand it over to you to explain, you know, why he decided to just give up everything and where he went, essentially, and, and how the success of the company was was really put on Betty's shoulders. You know, Richard James may have been an ingenious entrepreneur, but he proved that he had uh, some flaws in his character along the way. And when Slinky sales plateaued, he wasn't getting the kind of attention that he craved, and he loved being the pitch man for it. When he couldn't do that, 
unfortunately, he started cheating on Betty with a number of different women over the years. Uh, she found this out and was horrified. They've got six kids. And the other thing is he's been giving their money away to this charitable cause that is out to create Bibles all over the world in the local language. And he has gotten them hugely into debt. We're talking about six-figure debt in the early 1960s. And he is headed for Bolivia with his new love interest to become a missionary for the Wycliffe Bible folks. And see a Betty, bye, here's the company. Good luck with that and the six kids. Wow. And not to be deterred. I mean, Betty took over the business, correct? And, and kept it going. I mean, so much of this has centered around Richard James, where I feel like the second part of this, you know, we should be glorifying her really, because she, despite these, these obstacles in this relationship really was an amazing, you know, business person in her, in her own merit. That's right. And that was all the more exceptional at her time. What is mm -hmm. she going to do? It does she sell the company? No, she does the gutsy thing, says, I'm going to run the company. I'm going to make a go of it. I've got to feed these six kids. I've got to work us out of debt. I'm going to do this right. And she talked to their lenders and said, you've got to refinance us so that we can keep going forward. She was persuasive enough that they believed in her. She hired a songwriter to do that jingle. She bought ad time on TV and promoted her product. And she is what turned everything around when it could have gone right down the tubes. And she went on to run Slinky for decades after that into her 80s. She is one of the great women of the toy industry. She was gutsy. She had foresight. She was determined that Slinkies would always be made in the United States rather than offshore. So she had so many wonderful qualities that she picked up where Richard left off and actually brought Slinky to new heights after that. And this is this is the part where I, it, it was you, you tend to build up a profile of somebody as you as you start to learn about them. And this is one of those things where Richard James, I, I was I was looking at him from uh, admirable eyes, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, what an entrepreneur, what a, what a vision he had. Uh, and, and obviously, like you had said, he, he was a pursuer, like he didn't let any of these obstacles stop him from pursuing this, this dream and this goal that he had for Slinky. And then all of a sudden, th this massive change took place. Now, obviously, we're not talking about, you know, the moral man leading up to this, we're talking about the entrepreneurial side of it. But I was shocked to see that he would just leave his six kids and his wife and in uh, listen admirable enough that's great that he's he's you know donating to uh, a group that is developing bibles but essentially at the expense of his kids and his wife and obviously his business did you see anything leading up to this obviously his infidelity but is there anything leading up to that that you saw could maybe a, a change in his character leading up to that well, maybe this is continuous. Maybe it's once I've achieved that goal, I've set this up. Mm. Slinky has achieved what I hoped it could. What do I do now? What's my next thing? If I'm a pursuer, I need the next thing to pursue. And this is where the cause of Wycliffe Bibles filled a gap in what he wants to pursue. He's putting that same kind of drive into a different direction. Um, yeah, there's a lot of downsides 
to that, but I think that may actually be the seeds of that may be in his character all along. Wow. And I, I got to tell you, in the episode of the Toys That Built America, you, you said about Betty that she was, quote, every bit of a good, uh, every bit of good salesman as, as he was, but without the liabilities. And I thought that was worded really well because she obviously didn't have those character flaws. Right. She she really knew what she was grounded in and what she needed to do. She was committed to her company. She was committed to her kids. And that was behind her drive and kept her connected in a way that he ultimately wasn't. So Chris, as I mentioned earlier, we, we showed um, some clips of the Toys That Built America to some of our students here at Kanjahari High School, and they did a great job. They were really into it. And we we encourage them, write down some questions. I mean, we're going to have a, an expert in this field at our disposal. What would you like to know? So some of the kids came up with some pretty specific questions, some a little bit more general. Um, but the first one I'll give you here is from Gianna Memrick, one of our sophomores. Any idea, any ballpark as to how much money his estate actually earned or how, he, how much he actually earned? Some of the pictures of his, his house. I mean, it was phenomenal. When you think about how many slinkies you had to sell in order to get a uh, an estate like that, phenomenal. Any ideas in terms of, of profit? I don't. And in fact, when she, de- leading up to her death, uh, people were asking Betty James how much she had made over the years. Mm-hmm. And she was always very circumspect about that and said, I've got plenty or words to that mm-hmm. effect that she was not going to throw out figures. But yes, uh, the estate that they had on the Philadelphia's cushy suburbs uh, was very comfortable beyond that. And Betty had definitely turned over enough sales of slinkies that she didn't have to worry about uh, making the next payroll or the next food to go in her kids' mouths. So to continue this, uh, this trend here, we're going to go right to uh, a student of ours, Aiden Schulte. He asked, and I, I think you touched on this earlier uh, before the break, was how hard was it to convince people to sell the Slinky? It was just about impossible. He finally begged for Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia to please, please, please stock the Slinky. And then he begged his way into doing a demonstration. And that's what really was the breakthrough for Slinky. It wasn't just sitting on a shelf. It was seeing Richard James walk it downstairs and he was willing to do whatever was necessary to make it a success. He had enlisted Betty to come as a shill in the audience and say, oh, that's fantastic. I've got to have a slinky. And what happened was when Betty and her friend came to actually fake that they were interested buyers, the store was already full of people who were watching slinkies walk downstairs and they were amazed. They were snapping them up and Betty never needed to follow through on the scam because Slinkies were selling themselves after Richard did the demonstration. I love that. Uh, Mariah Hazard, one of the things that stood out to Mariah is that she noticed uh, originally he made 400 Slinkies. Was this an arbitrary number? Was this just what he could afford to get started? I have to imagine once things get get rolling here, those 400 are going to go pretty quickly. So I'm 400 is that an arbitrary number or was that just what what they requested maybe that may have been how much he could afford in raw materials to turn these out and sort of test the waters and see before i 
turn out thousands. Let's see how these first 400 go. That was him hedging a, a few bets and maybe being a little restrained on what he is hoping that he will eventually achieve. And uh, I don't know particularly why that was his magic number, but he was really keeping it small initially before he tried to go grand. That makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. So one of our last questions from uh, one of our students is from Lyracy Fowler. And she said uh, directly to, to you, Chris, uh, if you were in his position, would you have put in the two years that he did of work towards the Springs or the current Slinky? I would not. That is why I am very glad to have a salaried job that I don't have to be that kind of visionary entrepreneur. Uh, I have sort of my safety net underneath me that I know there's going to be something in my paycheck a couple weeks from now rather than having my product out there making it or not in the marketplace. So no, I'm not that guy. I admire that in people like Richard James. That's great. So we just have a few uh, kind of last questions here. This has been, like I said, really enjoyable for us. And, and we hope the, the listeners are enjoying it as much as we are. My question, Chris, as I uh, got prepared to, to interview to you today, what do you think separates a toy that essentially be, is, is looked upon as a fad versus something like the Slinky, the Hula Hoop, the Frisbee, that really does endure time? You know, I'm thinking like a fidget spinner. We have a bunch of those around the house. And they're not really used anymore. The Slinky is. <laughs> you know, that is something that every toy inventor is out to capture. And every manufacturer wants to have those. Loads of those toys that you mentioned started as fads, but they proved that they had staying power. And one of the things that unites them for me is that they've got incredible play value. They are kind of open-ended playing and there isn't a particular age bracket. There isn't a backstory that's involved. They really promote active, creative, inventive play. And they are ones that generation after generation can bring their own views to it. And it is something that there's an entry point for the youngest kids, and there's a charm even for bigger kids along the way. So those are rare. That's why there's only 70-some toys in the National Toy Hall of Fame. Those aren't everyday creations. And yes, uh, and that's one of the reasons the National Toy Hall of Fame requires that toys have been continuously on the market for at least 20 years, because we all know those sort of one season, one holiday season wonders that it's the flavor of the month. Everybody's got to have it, whether it's a rainbow loom or a fidget spinner or tickle me Elmo or something. Some of them prove that they have legs to keep on going and others. Yeah, I remember exactly that six month period when my friends and I all had product X. And, and you mentioned the word I, I like that you use today in this episode, as well as the History Channel episode, was was the evergreen. It's the evergreen toy that just keeps coming back. I think that's a phenomenal way to put it. Um, before we, before I have two more questions for you. Let's go back to Richard James here and, and close his his story out a little bit because we obviously know Betty just did a phenomenal job. Her legacy, you know, stands for itself. What ended up happening for Richard? Did he did he stay in Bolivia? You know, that's the other part of this story that I love. 
he basically disappears off the face of the earth. No one knows what actually happened after he departed. Uh, the story went on with Slinky and Betty in the US, but Richard James is gone. His story ends, and that is where he sort of fades out into the jungle in the way that I visualize it. That's that's shocking. I I didn't anticipate you saying that because I one of the I was I was ready to to do some more research on on his his legacy as well and his his ending of his story, but I I resisted that urge so I could hear it from you directly. So the shock and awe in my voice is definitely uh, authentic. Um, I have one more question for you, and then Phil's got one more as well. This one is a little more personal. What's your favorite toy? Ah, uh, that's. That's a tough one uh, since I deal with toys all the time, but uh, one of the things that I loved best growing up in the 1960s was a construction toy called Kenner Girder and Panel. It was a snap together plastic construction set. I could build skyscrapers with it. I had another set that I could build subdivisions, basically like the one I was growing up perfect scale to go along with my friction toy cars, which I also loved. So I was able to create entire worlds with my Kenner construction sets. And uh, they were ones that really powered a lot of imaginative play. That's phenomenal. That's Thank great. you. And my last question is, what do you foresee as the future of toys? I mean, it's, it's interesting as technology obviously advances, you have the very technological toys. Um, but the simple toys always seem to be coming back around regardless of generation. I think of like the poppets. What do you think will continue in terms of like the, the toy field, so to speak? I don't think we're ever gonna get away from physical toys. Um, nobody takes necessarily their electronic device to cuddle in bed when a stuffed animal would do that trick. Uh, I do think that we're always gonna have in our pandemic electronic world, it's always going to be sort of a hybrid that a really sort of healthy play diet includes physical play. It includes tactile and imaginative sort of free generated play, also rule-based play, whether that's in video games or tabletop games or sports, all of those features. Having a blend of that is something that's really important the same way as our food diet. If you just eat one thing, you're going to suffer from that. If you just play one way, you're probably also going to suffer from that. So we really want to encourage people to play lots of ways. And I think the market is going to continue to offer those multiple ways. The one thing that I have to say, I've heard this from a number of people who know the industry, is that grandparents are often the suckers who buy that stuffed animal that can also show YouTube videos in their belly or whatever it is. They do the upsell. They buy into that. It really doesn't improve the play quality of it, but they are willing to pay the extra because I love my grandkids so much. And manufacturers, frankly, want to sell you the $50 toy rather than the $5 one because there's a bigger profit margin. So there's some of that extraneous features that get built into toys because it shows well in the advertising or it sells to that grown-up. But mm -hmm. what kids know is that you can also play with a stick or a cardboard box, both of which are in the National Toy Hall of Fame. That's great. And it's, I, I, it, 
I know my parents are listening to this podcast and, and so are Phil's and they're definitely relating to everything you just said about <laughs> grandparents, Chris. So, but thank you again. I know Phil is going to close us out here, but again, it was a privilege to speak with you today and, and thank you again so much for, for donating your time. We really, really appreciate it. Hey, and Chris, there's something else too. We got to, we got to mention because uh, not to, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who's going to watch the, uh, the episode uh, on the history channel, but at the very, very end, and we talked about this before uh, during the break at the very end. And I'm sitting next to a Chiefs fan right here. Is there any way you could just give us a, a 30 second synopsis? How did the Super Bowl get its name? It was lacking a name. Sadly, it was just called uh, the World Championship Game, which doesn't have very much ring to it. And it was something that uh, the head of the AFL knew that his daughter had a toy called a Super Ball, and it was a great toy. It bounced like nothing else, and he adapted that to the name that we know for that big February football showdown and uh, used that as, so to speak, the springboard to bounce into what has become a, a legacy in its own right. Yeah, that's amazing. So I, we always do anytime we do any sort of like top fives or, you know, did you know episodes, we always like to include a little bonus. So we wanted to make sure and include that. Uh, and really, that was more for Phil as a Chiefs fan. Yeah. Thank you, Lamar Hunt. That was a good choice, Lamar Hunt. You, you, boy, that um, that definitely has stood this, this uh, sands of time here. Yeah. Um, so listen, Chris, once again, thank you so much for the time, but also we, we really appreciate because we, I mean, even through the speakers right now, we can see your passion, not only for toys, but what you're really doing is you're, you're encapsulating history and you have a passion for history. So we really do appreciate it. And we listen, anytime you're, you're always welcome on the, on the missing chapter. And I'm sure we'll, we'll be in touch with you again. I would love to come back. That's my childhood hula hoop behind me in the Zoom picture. So uh, I have it at the ready at all times in case there's a hula hooping emergency. And um, it's what got me on The Tonight Show. So I hold a special place in my heart for the hula hoop and all kinds of toys. Well, we might need a follow-up episode. I was because... going to say, you just threw that as as <laughs> you were on The Tonight Show. Who was the host? It was actually Jay Leno. And it was a clip that they filmed at Toy Fair, the big trade show that happens in New York City every year. And I was hula hooping there. And one of the stars of The Sopranos came and said, Chris, can you teach me how to hula hoop? This is an actor named Steve Sharippa. And he's kind of sizable. And he says, well, the hula hoop fits around my waist. I think I'm doing OK. And we're hula hooping along. I said, you know, this is kind of like riding a bike. We can do it together, but I can't teach you how to do it. And what made this funny, the twist here, is that he's got his earpiece in so the producer can talk to him. And what the producer is saying as we're hula hooping is, Steve, your fly is coming down. Oh. <laughs> so he stopped and adjusted his wardrobe malfunction. And that's what made it a funny enough clip that I was part of the compilation reel that showed uh, later on the Jay Leno show. Oh my gosh. What a, what a great it's quite the resume so. you have. I'm impressed. That's great. Even without that, but that's just the, the cherry on top of it. That's amazing. Well, guys, let me issue an invitation. Please come to the Strong Museum. We're just an easy drive down the thruway. We're so big, so much fun. You can't fit it all into a single day. 
and uh, we're only closed three days a year. We're fun for small kids, big kids. I have to help throw senior citizens out at the end of the day because they're having so much fun too, reliving their childhood, seeing other people play. It is such an engaging place. And I, I hope all your listeners will come pay us a visit too. And we sure will. And, and uh, from personal experience, the, the museum and everything you've done and all the advancements and even just the parking garage and everything, it's such an easy place to get in and out of. Uh, and we really can't, can't plug it enough. Um, so Christopher uh, Bench, thank you so much once again. And uh, I hope uh, you had a good time and we had a blast talking with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.